Hello, welcome to GM Crypto with the Coin Fund team. We've spent years as a multi-strategy investment firm focused on blockchain. So join us to unpack complex ecosystem trends and hear from the founders shaping the future of Web3. Please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at CoinFund underscore IO. Please note that none of the following should be taken as investment advice. See coinfund.io slash disclaimers for more important information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to GM Crypto with CoinFund. I'm Kelsey, CoinFund CMO, and today we have Seth, head of liquid investments and managing partner, and Austin, a partner who focuses on venture and liquid investments. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thanks, Kelsey. Doing great. Thanks, Kelsey. Yeah, thank you both for joining. And I know you just got back from Avalanche Summit. Was there anything particularly shocking or or surprising that you encountered out there? Austin, why don't you start with that as you were on stage at the conference? Yeah, happy to. I I think it it was one of the more interesting conferences that I've been to. And especially when, when you look at the the constituents and, and, and the people that were involved, it was a really nice mix of both developers, non-traditional crypto developers, meaning GameFi and a lot more movement in, in that area. And I think you know we'll probably end up chatting about that more, but that's one of the areas where, where I think we'll find a, a lot of adoption and you know onboard a, a whole bunch of users to crypto. Uh, but then also the the strength the Ava Labs team and, and their go to market in BD was incredibly impressed. It, I think the number is they they have fifteen BD people, but it, it feels like a hundred. They're all over the place. So really well organized. Whole bunch of catalysts coming to market right now in that ecosystem, particularly with with subnets and their application specific chains. But yeah, it, it was really exciting. It was a lot of fun to be part of the conference. Yeah, and Seth, what did you find out there? I'd say there was a surprisingly um, broader, uh, an impressively broad set of participants at the the conference. Really, um, everyone from game uh, developers, as Austin noted, to a bunch of people that are tangential to Avalanche within the technology stack that are are looking at ways to potentially collaborate. So, I, I think it was very much seen as a a, a place to interact with a lot of up and coming and impressive projects, uh, which is frankly what what the old uh, Ethereum DevCons uh, used to be. And I I think we'll uh, we'll get back to that, hopefully, with Columbia later this year. What one of the interesting comments that started to to emerge in conversations was the divergence between how we're thinking about the regulatory environment in the US and what people are seeing both in the UK and in continental Europe, there, there's just a very different perspective right now in European governments toward crypto. While the US is moving very quickly toward a more open mindset toward crypto, we, we had uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen in an interview last week talking about how her department needs to take crypto seriously because investors are, are very interested in it. In Europe, we've had the, the FCA or in, in the UK, the FCA tightening its stance around crypto. And, and in Europe, we seem to have one near miss after another uh, around uh, the European Parliament and crypto legislation. So that, that was something that was coming out in conversations and the degree to which a more open U.S. regulatory mindset 
leads Europe to change its stance uh, with the view that it has to stay competitive with um, with the U.S. for talent and for new business formation. So that that was something that that stood out from a number of conversations. Do you feel like, Seth, that some of the communities that you encountered in Europe are craving some of the structure and certainty that regulation can provide? I think they'd, they would love to do that. They're continuing developing crypto. Um, we, we've seen, as we've talked about in, in the past, Lisbon as a, a new hub for crypto within Europe. But there is an overhang and there there's a little bit more of a... A concern that there isn't as visible a regulatory lobbying effort in Europe and for the industry. Um, I, I think the big, the, the big awakening moment for U.S. crypto regulatory lobbying was the infrastructure bill last summer, where language was put in by Treasury by Secretary Yellen, who, uh, as I noted, is now. Uh, sounding much more open-minded about crypto, but but her office put in place language that potentially designated uh, crypto developers, node operators, miners as brokers, and was going to leave them with a set of reporting requirements that they'd be unable to comply with. And over the course of four days, you had the lobbying effort going to high gear, education going to high gear. And at the end of that period, you had bipartisan senior senators talking about how crypto is important to the economy. It was important to keep that technology innovation on shore. We saw that as a critical turning point, both in uh, the visibility of the the crypto lobbying effort, but also uh, in a an awareness and education from an, uh, an awareness and education perspective as well. And we've only seen that continue to improve and accelerate through the fall and now culminating with the executive order, which was very balanced. It, it was a, um, I, I'd say, a, a pretty meaningful positive surprise. And then comments from Secretary Yellen last week. So I think there's just been a lot more movement, a lot more clarity in in the U.S. And there isn't yet the, the visibility even on the path to getting there in, in Europe and the U.K., from a, a lobbying perspective, and it's an area that people have been talking about and trying to focus on, but but we haven't seen the same degree of uh, mobilization at all yet in Europe. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd love to focus a little bit more for a minute, and then I want to hear from you as well, Austin, on these education efforts you mentioned, Seth, because I feel like we have so many different ed- conversations around education for not only you know government decision makers and regulators, but also the broader community. What are you seeing in terms of the most impactful education efforts for decision makers in the government and regulators? Where are they finding the information? Who are they connecting with? And how, how is this being shared? I think the biggest element of education, the biggest eye-opener for a lot of policymakers, for a lot of politicians is how broad-based the support for crypto actually is right now. So I don't think it's education on particular aspects. It's an all of the above, but it's things like, if you think about the the Democratic Party in in the US and particularly the the progressive arm, the, the progressive arm has been relatively slow to embrace crypto, which is interesting because for a lot of people in crypto, the reason why we 
started engaging with crypto was because of its inclusivity and and the view that it opened up a broader set of financial services to a portion of the population that that was unbanked that that was excluded from traditional finance or the best parts of traditional finance so to get that one part of the message across incredibly important but then seeing the fundraising for uh Ukraine and, and kind of the precursor for that was Constitution Dow last year. So, so seeing the ability to mobilize people globally very quickly and in relevant dollar amounts, I, I think has been very powerful. Um, so there, there've been a number of engagement points and education topics, but, but as we know, crypto is a, a key foundational technology that we, we think is going to touch everything from banking inclusion to social media to politics to it's a a core foundational uh, technology and um, education is really about getting the various core foundational elements of crypto it's censorship resistance and the the ability to open up economic opportunities for a broader set of the population Getting, getting those core tenants out there from an education perspective and then letting people think about how that's relevant for the particular businesses or particular parts of society that they interact with. Yeah, exactly. And Austin, both you and Seth mentioned that there's a kind of broad set of participants at Avalanche this, this past week. And I really want to hear a little bit more. What do you think the catalyst was for that this year as a as a positive shift? And how do you think education on the community level played into that? Yeah, I think one of one of the really interesting things coming to market right now for Avalanche and you know how it's differentiating its offering versus uh, other blockchain ecosystems are Avalanche subnets, which stand for subnetworks. And uh, at, at their core, what they are are application-specific chains that are secured by Avalanche and interoperable and connected with Avalanche, but that allow for applications to not contend for resources on the same main chain or their C chain as other applications. And what that's doing is that's creating a lot of flexibility for certain kinds of applications that require some element of customization to be able to build bespoke use cases. And that's pulling in in particular, a large amount of gaming as well as some institutional DeFi offerings. So one of the gaming uh, or play-to-earn products coming to market uh, in a subnet is Crobato, which is already an incredibly successful play-to-earn game on Avalanche today. Uh, but they're launching their own subnetwork or, or subnet called Swimmer Network going live towards the you know, end of March, early April. And that gives them the ability to not contend for resources with other applications, to use their own native token as the gas token, to have you know, all, all of these uh, specific customizations that improve gameplay in, in, a, in a number of ways. And, and that's something that, that we're seeing DeFi Kingdom coming to Avalanche for that same reason. We're seeing Aave launched permission DeFi network as the subnet. So I think one of the drivers of a whole bunch of new use cases coming to Avalanche is this new functionality that gives applications a whole bunch more flexibility. 
That's really interesting, Austin. And with these play to earn games, are you seeing that as a primary trend in the gaming area? And and how do people start engaging with gaming if they're on the periphery or, or somewhat outside of the Web3 community, say someone that's mostly familiar with N64 and Star Fox, how do they make the leap over and start engaging with these play-to-earn games? Two of the key things right now are, are user experience uh, as well as the incentives around gameplay. And incentives are, are one of the things that brought in uh, a ton of users really early on with Axie Infinity and Krabada and, and a whole bunch of other games. But one of the things that's going to be really important in keeping those users there, and we're seeing a, a shift in terminology from what's called play to earn or P to E to now the, the term is morphing into play and earn, is that the games evolve their gameplay and not just have really robust in-game economies and, token, and tokenomics, but rather make the games incredibly fun to play where you can actually play the game without needing NFTs, without needing a token, but adding the NFT and adding the token makes it that much more engaging and that much more fun uh, and, and adds interesting additional elements. So we're seeing a whole bunch of AAA games come to market. We're seeing existing games evolve their gameplay. So Krabata, for example, is launching a battle game as well as a whole bunch of other ecosystem um, games around them. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that as a, a really broad trend. So I, I would say, you know, play to earn and plan earn are going to bring in a whole bunch of users. But what I'm really excited to see is that next evolution where the games can stand entirely on their own outside of the incentives and the token economics that brought users in in the first place. And that's what really brings in that larger cohort of players, like you were saying, when it doesn't have as much to do about crypto. It's just a fun game. Absolutely. And it sounds like the shift to play and earn could be another or maybe even the next on-ramp for the crypto curates once that user experience is improved. Is that what both of you are seeing as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd say this is this is one area that we think is going to be, a, as Austin noted, a big on-ramp for mainstream users. We, we have a, um, it's interesting, people love to engage with crypto in a way that is very positively skewed, meaning we have a, a portfolio company, Fold, which has a, a Bitcoin rewards debit card. And uh, the the CEO was telling us a, a few quarters ago that the reason why engagement is so high is people love to get Bitcoin um, without having to put their uh, their money at risk. So evolving gaming models where you're you're playing a fun game, you're earning that you would have played otherwise, you're earning crypto uh, as a way to start getting crypto and then figuring out falling down the the various rabbit holes after that incredibly powerful. So, and it's an all of the above, right? It, it will be play to earn, play and earn, and a, a bunch of models that um, are, are yet to be front and center quite yet. So uh, we're, we're very excited about this. Absolutely. And since we're about at time now, I do have a final question. And that is, Seth and Austin, did either of you have a favorite game that you played before your Web3 gaming days? Yeah, this is probably dating myself a little bit, but I would say Super Smash Brothers on N64. 
it, it was my, my favorite. I used to always play uh, Donkey Kong or, or Samus, and my, my brother was always be, uh, Pikachu. So that, that, that was my favorite. <laughs> Did you and your brother play against each other, or do you play on the same team against the computer? We'd usually play uh, against uh, against each other, but sometimes uh, on the, the same team. But I, I guess that's kind of how brothers are. <laughs> yeah, things would get too tense in my house if we if we played against each other. So my sister and I were always on the same team. What about you, Seth? Did you have a favorite game that, that you were playing with um, N64 or otherwise before your Web3 days? Probably Doom. <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> Back in the day. Back in the day. So that's a classic one too. And it's it's just really exciting to see how far we've come with these different gaming experiences and the overall user experience. I think that we'll have to have a, a future episode focused completely on gaming. So I think that there's a lot more to dig in here. But Seth, can you give us a quick market update? Yeah, Austin, I, I know you had uh, some views that you wanted to, to throw out there and... Um... Well, one of the things that, that we've been talking about recently, and I don't know if this is a consensus viewpoint yet, but I think we're starting to see really interesting decorrelation with broader macro, where crypto markets in the last couple of months have been roughly correlated to one with any major move in treasuries or with equity markets. And that's starting to change where Bitcoin, Ethereum, and you know other major crypto assets are, are starting to move more on their own. And I, I think that's eliminating an overhang where one of the things putting a lid really on, on crypto markets was weaker macro. Uh, and it feels like now we're entering a phase you know, similar to what we saw in the second quarter of 2020, as we were emerging from, you know, the very earliest stages of COVID, where crypto is, you know, now moving according to the beat of its own drum. But Seth, would love to to get your thoughts uh, on that as well. Yeah, no, I I think there's a, I would agree with the fact that crypto is marching to its own to its own beat, but I think it, it's still showing a decent correlation to the the tech sector. So the days when we really see crypto do well in general have been days when the NASDAQ materially outperforms the S&P. And I, I read that as just being tied to, to real yields. So real yields being interest rates minus inflation. And, and those are quite negative and negative real yields are stimulative. They're, they're also supportive of kind of the growthiest assets that have the most either free cash flow or earnings or economics coming further out into the, the future. So I think what we're seeing is a little bit of a view that real yields are going to stay quite negative for a while. And that's certainly acting as a, a nice tailwind for crypto. If I step back, and I think we've talked about this on prior podcasts, the general framework that I've used is I, I think the macro, if we think of macro and geopolitical as two distinct risks for the market, I think the macro risks were more or less resolved at the end of January or beginning of February, where the concern was that the Fed was not going to be data dependent, that the Fed was going to tighten into a slowing economy, which was really similar to 4Q of 18. And what we saw was Omicron didn't slow the economy as much as expected. The economy remained very strong at the end of January, beginning of February. 
And in fact, the Fed was tightening into a very strong economy. So they weren't making a policy mistake. They were remaining data dependent. And I think that right there, whether you're in a slowing economy, an accelerating economy, data dependence is really important to the extent that Powell has uh, reiterated data dependence um, a few times since then. So I think macro is more or less resolved. And then the question came down to geopolitical. And with geopolitical, we've started to see kind of the the rough framework of a uh, ceasefire come together for uh, Russia, Ukraine. There's obviously been uh, there have been gives and takes. Um, the closer you get to the rough contours of a ceasefire, the more both sides or all sides start to um, to saber rattle a little bit to to try to get the um, the most favorable resolution for for their side. So, um, but but it certainly seems like we're on that path. Um, a little more talk about. Um, Russia having control over regions of Ukraine, so uh, Ukraine not participating in in NATO. So I, I think what the market is partially reflecting as well is being on that path toward a, a ceasefire on the geopolitical side, reducing risk there after having seen uh, the, the macro risks of the Fed not being data dependent being retired as well. And that's being reflected in the VIX. So, you know, a, a few weeks ago, the VIX was over 30. Um, now, now we're looking at a VIX that's in the low 20s. So showing that that risks are starting to, to be resolved. That also means that the market is a little riskier, right? It's, um, it, it's moved up and it's assuming that, that we're on a path toward resolution. So if it turns out either the Fed isn't as data dependent or geopolitical starts to fall apart, then then there's more downside risk to the um, the market from here, both crypto and, and traditional markets. But generally speaking, I'm I'm very bullish here and, and I'm bullish on the view that we kind of see this path forward now. And and it's interesting, implied volatilities in Bitcoin and ETH in the options market, very, very low. So um, there's been a lot of call selling to generate yield, and you could see a very quick unwind if we start to push through that that 53, 55,000 range. Thank you both for joining me this morning, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.